And at some point it really dawned on me that actually imperfection is this kind of gift. Our shared imperfection is what sort of says to us, no one is always going to have the right answer. No one is going to be more worthwhile than someone else. Um, no life is more worthwhile than some other life. We are all flawed. Uh, we all bring something to the table. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. How do we learn to be happy with what we have and stop pursuing some impossible and unattainable expectation of existence? This constant striving and overachieving seems to plague Americans more than most. We end up being among the most anxious people on the planet. Is there a better way to proceed? I'm Mary Stack, and today we do have some help at hand in the form of uh, two fine minds. Avram Alpert is a writer and educator. He's written the book, The Good Enough Life. He's currently a research fellow at the New Institute in Hamburg, and he's working now on a book about wisdom. Our second guest, Kieran Setia, is a professor of philosophy at MIT, and he has produced a book, Life is Hard. Setia suggests that trying to live the perfect life in difficult circumstances will only bring us disappointment since much of the hardships in life can't be changed or ignored. So we need to come to terms with reality. Welcome to you both gentlemen. Sure. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start with you, Avi, coming to this at uh, this late hour from Germany. Guten Abend. Guten Abend. This lovely expression of yours, the good enough life, doesn't sit so well with the current culture, which is kind of a mythology here in the United States, which idealizes this perfectly curated life. So tell us a bit about the history of the title. Um, the Good Enough Life was based on an idea from Donald Winnicott, the psychoanalyst, a psychiatrist. Winnicott saw that parents who tried to be great uh, were making this actually great mistake. When, when they tried to do too much for their children, when they tried to give their children everything, when they, when they tried to make sure their children wouldn't have pain or suffer or any of these things, they were taking away their child's ability to understand the world that they were entering into, this complex, fraught, often difficult world that required us to be creative, to be adaptive, uh, to marvel at strangeness and difficulty and, and, and keep working through it. Um, and so Winnicott didn't then say, well, okay, you know, if you're not gonna be great, just give up, of course not. No, I said, you still have to be good enough, right? You have to be good, uh, you have to be uh, uh, caring, you have to be decent, you have to love your child, and you have to provide enough. You have to make sure they have the, the material needs uh, uh, to, to grow and, and prosper. Um, and I thought when I was working through this phrase and this idea, I'm, I'm not a Winnicott you know, specialist by any extent, but the, the idea caught in my mind and I thought, where else does this apply? Uh, what else is this doing? And this phrase good enough suggested something really important to me. And, and it was because it combined in this language a few different ideas. You know, one was goodness and one was enoughness and they were linked. It was no longer that you could think, well, I'm a moral person, um, so I don't need to care about my material life, or I'm a, I'm a you know, rugged capitalist, so I don't need to care about my spiritual life. It was that actually what we are as human beings is, you know, we have both symbolic or meaning-based needs and we have material needs. And good enough brings these together at the same time that it cuts back on some of the excess pressure, some of the undue uh, and, and impossible goals that we can start to strive for when we think about the good life or, or the materially perfect life or whatever it might be. And good enough gave us this idea of imperfection, um, which I think maybe we'll talk a bit about more, but, but for me is a really kind of key idea for developing some, some potent parts of the human condition. 
I kind of like that underlying concept of imperfection in the book, since many equate that word with something which is less than or substandard. And you see it as a kind of gift that you can be you can maybe learn from. And you you actually worked on that in your last book, uh, the Buddhist approach of what imperfection can teach you about living well. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can explain a little bit about that and, and your sort of uh, relationship with Buddhism as part of that journey. Sure. And I think that for like a lot of people, when I first started thinking about imperfection, it was something to kind of bear with, uh, deal with, you know, push through, okay, life isn't perfect, but it's going to be all right. And we have the resources. And at some point it really dawned on me that actually imperfection is this kind of gift. Because if we lived in a world where some people really could perfect themselves and really be better than everybody else, we would have no argument for equality. We could really say, okay, there's perfect people and there's imperfect people. And, and this is just the way it is. Our shared imperfection is what sort of says to us, no one is always going to have the right answer. No one is going to be more worthwhile than someone else. Um, No life is more worthwhile than some other life. We're all flawed. Uh, We all bring something to the table. So our imperfection was this kind of sign uh, of our equality and also of our necessary humility. And that these were not bad things, but these were things that opened us up to other people. That made it possible for us to form community with other people. Having the friend who's kind of perfect uh, or tries to be all the time can be quite frustrating, right? But having that friend who's vulnerable like you, who's flawed like you, who opens themselves up like you, this can really create connections between people. And so imperfection is, is this path to, to the egalitarian community. And once I started to think about that, I, I also started to realize that, you know, sometimes we idealize uh, other groups of humans or, or ways of being in the world. And um, for me, when I was younger, that really was Buddhism. I had this very kind of stereotypical suburban American, you know, I'm tired of these Western religions. Buddhism has it figured all out. I'm going to go be Zen and everything's going to be fine. And then as I you know, studied and, and learned more about Buddhist history, I realized that, of course, Buddhists are people like all people. Um, they're not perfect. They make lots of mistakes. Buddhist philosophy is, is flawed and, and complex and, and internally uh, fraught in various ways. And for a while, what I did was to kind of say, well, I don't need to think about Buddhism then, right? It's not perfect. I need to go find this other thing. Uh, and I started to think, actually, no, it still offers some. It still offers these amazing insights, these amazing ideas, even the kind of modernized Buddhism that, that I received, um, the kind of Alan Watts Buddhism, it's still quite interesting. Uh, once I stopped believing that it was perfect, once I stopped reading that it, that it had all the insights. So imperfection was also a way for me to appreciate things that, that I think I would have glossed over otherwise. So just before I go to the quote uh, about greatness, which is this huge issue, how to be great and what greatness is. You yourself, were you kind of struggling with that kind of dilemma of being successful, being happy, doing good? I mean, was that something to do with your own journey that actually caused you to pursue this in a book? Yeah, no, and I, I still am. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't have exactly the, the solution for this, which is why I think, okay, I just have to be good enough. I don't have to offer the perfect solution. It's okay. And I think this came out in one of the kind of pre-discussion questions, you know, I want to be good enough, but how do I do it? But it's certainly true that when you live in, in a society, in a culture where you don't know, I mean, I really don't know year to year, will I have a job? Um, am I going to be okay? Will I, you know, how am I going to proceed in this life? And I see that the people who manage to do that um, are ones who are somewhat lucky, but also right, the ones who achieve some kind of realm of greatness, right? They're the most famous at this place, or they publish this book that got the, the most reviews or the most responses. And then I think, well, if, if I can't do that, how am I supposed to get a job? How am I supposed to keep kind of doing the work that I love doing, being part of the community that, that I love being a part of. 
And, you know, I don't, I don't always know. I just kind of model along. Um, I try when I can, if I'm convening a panel, you know, it's sometimes really nice to bring in a grad student or an adjunct professor or someone who hasn't had the opportunity, you know, so there's these kind of small things you can do, recognizing that work, talking about it as much as you can. Um, but it's really, it's, it's not easy. So I totally felt that. I mean, I think in the book, I start, you know, I wanted to be a, of course, I was five, I watched sports, I wanted to be a famous athlete, I wanted to be a stock, I mean, I had all these silly uh, fantasies that, like, I was very fortunate that, that I, you know, I grew up in a family in a context that helped me kind of wean myself off of these, see how destructive they could be when we were kind of fighting each other all the time, living in this winner versus loser culture. And that really, that wasn't what I wanted to be a part of, and I wanted to dedicate myself to something else, and I'm, I'm very happy that I did, even with the, you know, occasional precariousness that comes with that. Now you're going to say you're married to an amazing financier that enables this to happen. <laughs> I'm married to an amazing person. She's an artist. I mean, you know. Oh, <laughs> so you're both living rather precariously yeah. then. But it's but it's still beautiful. I mean, I wouldn't I would never do it any differently. Good, good. So in your book, you say that, you know, we have become this nation obsessed with greatness. And, and the quote was in the book. This vision of the world has given us an epidemic of stress, anxiety, inequality, and ecological damage. So that, that's huge. Um, it's not just about our own sort of, I'm doing it this way. It's the entire ramification of that on the planet. So how did this impetus infect the American psyche? How did we kind of evolve to this state of being? Is there anything you can see as an attributable moment that changed us or made us more obsessed with this kind of idea this myth of being great i mean i don't have probably the the i'm not an american historian cultural studies person you know but i've kind of absorbed this culture living up in it and you know one of the things that i found actually looking through the intellectual history you know america united states is this very capitalist nation um and there is something philosophically speaking in the roots of capitalism that doesn't necessarily go this way, but can uh, under certain circumstances. And I try to say this somewhat briefly, but Adam Smith, uh, as people may know, is a moral philosopher, was the kind of father of capitalism, wrote The Wealth of Nations, but also wrote this book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And one of Smith's, you know, that people like me tend to like a bit more because it's a bit more critical, but, you know, Smith's point in that book is actually, it's not good to pursue self-interest. It's not, it's not the right thing to do. We should be benevolent. We should care about each other uh, in the theory of moral sentiments. But he has a problem. And he basically says, what we really want in life is to love, to be loved, to be part of a community. Um, who do we see who is loved? Well, we see the great and the powerful loved. And sometimes we see that the wise and the good are not, right? They're kind of tossed aside. They're, they're discarded. They're not respected as much. Um, they don't get the same uh, uh, acclaim in society. And so people want to be great. And Smith thinks, and I think this is the kind of error, he thinks there's nothing we can do about this. All that we can do is find a way to have greatness work out for the rest of us. And so he sort of says, well, pursue your self-interest. You won't be able to spend all that you earn. And so eventually you're going to have to spread it back around in the community. And so Smith's theory is this, this invisible hand will kind of make the world more, you know, give it some enough equality, sufficient equality. And then what happens, I think, is that, you know, in, in the U.S. culture, we, we democratize the wrong part of greatness, right? We don't, we don't democratize this idea that everybody 
is good, unique, uh, virtuous, has this capacity, right? We democratize this idea that someone can be that great person who has too much that they then have to give it away. And once you do that, right, once you sort of say, we live in a democracy where it's not about sharing power, it's about having access to the possibility of dominating others. You don't really have a democracy, but you also have a winner-loser culture. And then if you're not on the kind of winner side of that, then you wind up feeling kind of on, on the loser side of it. And again, I think this may be something we can come back to in, in Karen's book, but this is part of the problem of telling your life as a kind of narrative, right? You sort of say, well, I'm, I'm a winner. I'm, I'm trying to telling my story, but I'm going to be the one on top or I'm a loser. I didn't make it. Um, you miss out, right? Even in this terrible system that really pits us against each other, you miss out on the plurality, the complexity and, and all the other things going on in your life. So I think that this, this is a tremendous pressure. It really is on us, but there are things we can do in, in our own lives and how we interact with others to, to push back. Okay, so let's touch a little bit on the sort of spiritual dimension. The mall has, has in some ways kind of replaced the cathedral now in terms of significance in people's lives. You know, it's the place they all flock to on Sundays. And it seems to be that you're acknowledging, both of you actually, a kind of spiritual void suggesting that we need a moral imperative to lead a, a good life. Um, and the quote that, that I liked was, good enoughness reminds us not to be too hard on ourselves. None of us is perfect. None of us can be perfectly good enough in a world largely driven by greatness and the competitive demands of the modern economy. At the same time, good enoughness refuses to let us capitulate on these imperfections, adopting the good enough world View means doing a little better each day to orient ourselves towards making a world good, decent, and sufficient for all. This is what I mean about the common good that you mm -hmm. allude to. So with that thought, I'm moving over now to Kieran. You're a philosopher operating at MIT, this techno world, uh, which must be a, a challenge when you're sort of surrounded by a tribe of problem solvers. Yet in your book, you draw both on knowledge of ancient advice and understanding from the philosophers, and then you combine that with personal hardships uh, to kind of give a wake-up call to your readers. So can you tell us a little bit about how you combined your academic expertise and your own kind of hard life knocks or certainly chronic pain and, and other problems and how you came to write about that? So it, the book really did come out of my experience with chronic pain. I have chronic pelvic pain, which I've had since I was 27. And it's one of those things that, you know, I, I now have a diagnosis, which took quite a while, but the diagnosis is chronic pelvic pain, which is basically just a name for the symptoms. I mean, it's not exactly illuminating. It's one of these things there's no reliable treatment for. And it changes your sense of what the question about how to live well looks like when you think, well, whatever it's going to look like, it's not going to look like it's free of physical suffering. It's going to involve that for an indefinite period uh, of time. But there's also, I, I found philosophical puzzlement in why exactly the, this experience was so difficult and so challenging because you know my chronic pain is not debilitating. I'm able to do this, for instance, I'm able to keep my job and that you know, sleep deprivation is the hardest thing, but I can live with it. And I found philosophy philosophical thinking about pain, phenomenologists who study the, the character of lived experience, really illuminating and consoling. I mean, even just understanding in a deeper way what's bad about it, I found helpful, but also orienting. And there's also the consolation of, of, of solidarity, of sort of sharing and communicating an experience like that. But I didn't want to write a book that was entirely 
about me or entirely about the experience of chronic pain. And I suppose if there was a, a kind of moment, if you were going to make the, the Hollywood movie of, of how I came to write the book, the, the anecdote I would tell is that there was at some point I was recognizing that this condition was not going to go away. And I felt very angry and very bitter. And I remember sitting somewhere watching people, strangers walk by across a room thinking with, with terrible envy, you don't know how good you have it, you know, not being in pain. And then there was a beat and I thought, I have absolutely no idea what these people are going through. It could be any kind of hardship. It could be much worse than what I'm going through. And at that point, I, I, I sort of had this sense that there's a, there is a, it, it's not inevitable that one's own suffering can be a path to thinking about suffering more generally or to compassion for others, but it can be. There are moments you can seize on at which you can treat your own, whatever difficulties you're going through as symptomatic of the fact that everyone is going through difficulties and that that's part of the human condition that philosophy really needs to address. Then of course, I was working on this before the pandemic, then the pandemic hit. And so at that point, there was a, an epidemic of loneliness, of grief, and the kind of theme of the book that life is hard and the best we can hope for and what we should hope for is to live well in the face of that by grappling with it came to feel a, a kind of much more universal uh, than it had felt even even beforehand. And so it, I, I kind of wrote the book during the, the first year of the pandemic, kind of locked down with my word processor and books I was reading, and it really shaped how I wrote it. You're listening to Living the Good Enough Life with Avi Alpert, author of The Good Enough Life, in conversation with Kieran Setia, author of Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Was the experience of being in pain exacerbated by being alone in the pandemic? Or was it lessened or psychologically feels lessened by being out and about? I mean, for me, that one of the big difficulties of pain, I think this is true for a lot of people, is the way it draws attention to your body and sort of, it's not just that pain is bad in itself, it obstructs your engagement with other people and the world. And so the way I mostly cope with it is by throwing myself into doing other things, like really trying to pay attention to other things, other people. And so some of that was taken away during the pandemic. But honestly, I think writing a book was is one of the, for me, working on something like that, really being engrossed in something is one of the ways I can sort of make my body just sort of subside into the background. And so I found working on the book really therapeutic. Interesting. I think a lot of the world seems to operate in a tremendously precarious position. Lots of people are concerned just about where the next meal is coming from. Are their children safe? Can they get access to a doctor? I mean, very basic things. Why is it that we, generally in the West, want or expect a more cushy landing in life? Where did that thinking come from? It's kind of remarkable. I think it has really deep roots. I mean, I should say that e even in the West, in the US and the UK, I think poverty rates are still you know, hovering around 10%. And with right now, I think a lot of people are facing inflation and cost of living crises. I think especially in the UK right now, things are very, are very difficult. But then even the affluent face hardships. I mean, you know, there's no way to get through life without facing infirmity, aging, loneliness, grief, failure, the injustice and absurdity of the world. And in a way, I think it's not a mystery why we would want to avoid hardship, but why deny it? Why pretend that the ideal of you know, living your best life, finding your bliss 
is always within reach. And that's what I think has really deep roots, both in philosophy and in, in human psychology. It goes back to, in philosophy, to Aristotle. So he writes the Nicomachean Ethics, his central book in ethics, and it ends by saying, yeah, there's the life of practical virtue dealing with the difficulties of, of getting along with others. But really, the, it ends with a vision of the ideal life of contemplation, a life free of, of human need and human attachment even. So that vision, the idea that we should approach living with a vision of the ideal life and aim towards that goes right back to the roots of Western philosophy. And it also has deep roots in human psychology. There's a quote from the philosopher Simone Weil, thought flies from affliction as promptly and irresistibly as an animal flies from death. And I think that's right. There's a way in which, of course, we, we flee from thinking about the ways in which life is hard because it's painful to think about the ways in which life is hard. I mean, I just said one of the ways I cope with pain is by engrossing myself in something else. So I think those are very deep reasons why we might turn away from the difficulties in life. The problem is that if we don't go through the pain of facing up to the ways in which life is painful, we're not gonna be able to come to terms with reality and actually live the kind of good life that engages with what's actually happening around us and happening both to us and to everyone else in the world. So I think we have to get through that difficulty despite the philosophical and psychological obstacles to it. Well, there's a lot of books on the market, um, as you know, trying to help us find ourselves, find meaning, find direction, be the best, the most popular, the fittest. I mean, ever, ever number of those books and they sell. So there's this, this kind of deep dissatisfaction lurking under the surface in, in, in people's lives. And I'm not sure why that is, whether we're scratching an itch, which is normal and we've just made it fester um, but I think that one thing that, that's kind of strange is that we have this idea of a good life being attached to being happy. And that's not necessarily true, is it? I mean, they're two different kind of concepts. Right. You I make think that... happiness as a kind of byproduct, but let you, I'll let you talk. Yeah, about no, that. no. I, I think that's a deep, a deep kind of philosophical distinction that, is very orienting to, to make. Now, philosophers often make this distinction between being or feeling happy on the one hand and living well on the other with kooky thought experiments. So the, the classic thought experiment is you imagine yourself, the, the sole person plugged into a simulation that perfectly simulates ordinary life, maybe a wonderful life, and you don't know you're plugged in and you're the only person plugged in and you feel happy as far as you can tell, things are great, but you're not actually engaging with anyone or anything but this simulation machine. You're not really living a good life. You're barely living a life at all. And you know, you, you wouldn't want someone you love to plug into that and just be, you know, in a vat or of, of fluids, you know, alone forever. And what that tells us is, right, there's there's feeling happy, it's just a state of mind. And then there's actually living well, which involves engaging with the world around you. And you can't really live well unless you're living in the truth. You have to live in the world as it is, not the world as you wish it would be. And so I think that reorientation is, is crucial to overcoming some of the distortions that dominate the self-help genre. I mean, it's also useful in helping us to realize that if we're going to live well, 
that's not just a matter of treating ourselves the way we should. It's a matter of treating other people as we should. That it has this ethical dimension that Avi also drew attention to. And in a way, even though you know philosophers often start with these wild thought experiments, the contrast between feeling happy and living well shows up in all kinds of ordinary contexts. So grief is one of the paradigm examples that grief is painful. It's not, it's not a way of feeling happy, but it's an essential part of living well to acknowledge loss. The same thing is true of when we, you know, we read the paper and we're angry about the injustice of the world. We're onto something. It's not, that's a kind of pain about the way the world is that we wouldn't be living better if we got rid of that pain. That pain is giving us a guide to reality and how to orient ourselves towards it. So yes, I think if we try to live well and we're lucky enough, one of the side effects will be happy. But yeah, I, I don't think aiming at happiness is really aiming at the right, the right thing. So it's interesting. Somebody's just typed a question in and th this kind of zones into the heart of the matter. This idea that we talked about before of the good enough being slightly less than or substandard. Somebody said, please describe or compare the difference between good enough and settling. I think that's a key distinction. I think that in a way, it's the contrast between saying, I'm going to make the best of what might be a bad lot. I'm not going to accept just because I'm going to accept that things are bad or difficult in the sense of acknowledging that, not trying to deny it, not in the sense of not trying to change it or just you know, giving into it, but I'm going to take in that reality and then try to, to do something good with it. That I think is, is sort of a healthy way to think about, about not settling, but it's very different from evaluating how you're doing by the standard of what the ideal life or the best life would be. That's what I think is very, it can be, that's the source of the crippling self-doubt and anxiety and often shame and blame that, that I think both Avi and I, in, in focusing on ideas about being good enough, the good enough life, really want to turn away from. I don't know, maybe Avi also has has thoughts about that, that question. I don't know. Yeah, if, jump uh, in if you want to um, comment on that. Sure. No, thanks. Thanks for the anonymous uh, question, too. It's interesting. There's a book. I want to say that the, it's a political scientist, and I think it's Robert Goodin, has a book called On Settling, um, mm -hmm. which makes an interesting argument, you know, kind of to defend settling and to say settling isn't just giving up effectively. It can also be, right, we're settled. Uh, we're calm. We're, we're present. We're kind of dealing with what's here. And that act of settling then kind of allows us to move forward. Um, so there's there's a way. I mean, it depends a little bit what right what we mean by settling. But other than that, you know, I, I, I the way we tend to use settling or good enough colloquially, right? good enough as well, can sound and um, people have said this to me. It's not. And I think it's not an unfair criticism, right? It's not inspiring. Right? You say you just want to be good enough. Like it sounds kind of okay. Right? <laughs> you want me to get out of. You know, I don't have to do anything then. It's good enough. It's fine. But I think when we really think through what what would constitute good enough, right? What would actually make a world um, that is decent, that is caring, that provides meaning, that provides opportunity, that 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 provides um, also material and, and emotional sufficiency for people? It's not that low a bar. It's actually an incredibly high bar, um, and it's an achievable one if this is what we want to do: is really to kind of make it possible for everybody. Um, but if our argument is, well, you know, I don't want to just settle, I want to get the max, um, then I think what we we lose is that actually this goal of you trying to maximize means that someone else is almost necessarily minimizing. This is the sort of consequence. And if we think about this more in terms of what Mary, you've been pointing us to, right, the common good, 
then what is good enough is, is part of this, what's, what's shared and, and, and what's uh, meaningful among us. So this would be one, one way to think about good enough, not just as like, you know, I built this bed and there's some screws left over. I think, okay, it's good enough. It's not going to fall down. Um, but actually like, no, everyone has a bed. Okay, that's good. Like that's, that's what we're going for. Sufficient. Well, I, I um, think you raised an incredibly wonderful array of different questions for us all to think about. And I would strongly advise if you can't get these books, go and get your libraries to order them so that you and lots of other people can read them and enjoy them. You'll feel better. A lot of good advice. So I'd like to thank Avi Alpert, author of The Good Enough Life, in conversation with Kieran Setia, author of Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. So I'm just going to say Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, the Mass Cultural Council, Cambridge Community Foundation, and you guys. So you can go to the website, cambridgeforum.org, and there you'll find a lot of podcasts of this program shortly and many other forums. And uh, I wish you all warm greetings and no arguments. Thank you very much. Thank you.